Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. Before we start, this podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app. Please note that this episode contains discussions of suicide. If this episode brings up anything for you, Lifeline is available 24-7 on 13114 and Beyond Blue on 1300 I'm your host, Stephanie, back again. And today we have a brand new guest and his name is Nick Fanasia. Hello, millions of psychocinematic listeners. Hi. So, Nick. Um, yes. People might already recognize your voice from knowing you, but <laughs> uh, people might recognize your name yeah. from being the editor of Psychocinematic. That's true. And you also happen to be my brother. Yeah, just a coincidence. So, welcome. <laughs> it is an honor to be invited onto this wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, do you want to tell listeners like a little bit about your background? I am a um, I'm a 30 year old white Caucasian male. <laughs> I hail from sunny Brisbane. I'm in the middle between Steph and Maz. <laughs> middle child syndrome. Neglected. Yep. And I'm a video editor and I work for Brisbane City Council. Shout out to Brisbane City Council. Shout out to Brizzy City Council. And I quite like my job, actually, which is weird. And you've been working with film and TV, mostly editing, for mm-hmm. for a very long time. Seven years? Seven years. Maybe longer. Maybe ten years. And because we're very incestuous here at Inside oh, Cinematic, yeah. he went to university with Michael Watson. That's right. Yeah, I went to <laughs> uni co-host. with Steph's husband. <laughs> the OG co-host. Yeah. Original and the best. Well, firstly, is there anything you've been watching lately that you've enjoyed? I've been thinking about this because I know that you asked your guests this question, and I've been watching um, Gordon Ramsay clips on YouTube <laughs> of um, Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares, and watching Gordon Ramsay swear at people and <laughs> yell at people. What are you, an idiot sandwich, etc. Yeah, yeah. And he calls people donkeys and stuff. It's so good. <laughs> I used to really hate him, but um, I've come to really love him because he cares about the food. Should he be so aggressive, though? No, absolutely not. No, he's a piece <laughs> of shit. He treats everyone like trash, but it's fun to watch. I was going to say that's why I still watch like Married at First Sight for similar reasons. Yeah. But it's actually not been fun to watch lately. It's been traumatically mm. awful. <laughs> yeah, I don't really watch it, but I see the pedestrian updates like every six minutes. That's all you need. But I hate watch that show because that quote unquote experts oh. are all psychologists or therapists. Yeah. And the male one is a registered psychologist in opera. And I just don't know how you can host a show like that ethically mm. and still be a practicing psychologist because it is so bad and unethical and terrible. But that's reality TV for you, isn't it? But last night I went to a comedy show <gasps> by Rosie Waterland and her podcast had a show. Love her. <laughs> uh, just I don't know who she is. <laughs> Um, but her podcast, Just the Gist, is one of my faves, and they've done an episode on the ice pick lobotomy, which we talked about a lot. So, yeah, I went along and it was very good, very funny. Because it was our host, Stephanie Fanasia's birthday yesterday. Yeah. So, happy birthday to Steph on the 4th of April. When this comes out, it won't be yesterday, but... Thank you. I'm expecting everybody who listens to this podcast to send me a present every year on the 4th of April now that they know my birthday. 
You'll get three extra presents a year, I think. It's very <laughs> exciting. Nick, I wanted you to be a co-host for a while now, and yeah. the movie that you really wanted to do was this one. I'll say it now. It is The Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Which came out in 2001, directed by Wes Anderson, written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Uh, why did you want to do this one? I wanted to do a film that I knew quite well just so I could have some authority talking about it. And it's probably, I don't want to go overboard, but like maybe my favorite film of all time. It was the first film I saw when I was a kid. I think I saw it when I was like 13 or 14 or something that uh, made me realize that there was a director behind the scenes making everything we're seeing on screen. It was sort of his or her unique vision. And so it sort of changed my life, which sounds disgusting, but it really did. It really did. And um, it just really resonated with me. And then I was thinking about it and I sort of realized there's a lot of mental health issues in a lot of the characters, which I didn't realize when I was younger. So I thought it'd be a good one to pick apart. Why did you want to do this film? I also loved it and resonated with it. And it was just the most interesting movie I'd seen. And I couldn't quite figure out why I liked it so much. Yeah. But I've always loved it and just watch. It's like a comfort movie. I just watch it all the time. And then the podcast, Why Are Dads, another great podcast, covered it about fatherhood. And it just was like, oh my God, I understand why this movie is so good now. Like it's all about how a dad who was a really absent father who just got what he could out of everybody around him and trying to rebuild that relationship in in a really different way that you usually see in movies where it's not immediately obvious. Mm. But it's one of those movies where... I would say to to friends or people I met, that's my favourite movie, and they'd be like, oh, that movie was weird. I hated it. Yeah, I got that a lot too, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's deeper than people realise it is on the surface. Yeah, I think people see sort of like the symmetrical framing and the quirky costumes and the over-stylized nature of it and think it's just this sort of offbeat, weird indie comedy. But it's actually, it deals with a lot of human things, a lot of issues that we can all relate to, which I think is its power. Oh, beautifully said. (laughs) The scene will always be stuck in my head of Richie Tannenbaum's uh, suicide attempt and the Elliot Smith song playing in the background like made me instantly fall in love with Elliot Smith's music too. So it, it impacted me in lots of different ways. And I wanted to read out this quote because it's nice to see that other people couldn't break away from that sort of image. But Luke Wilson, he's not like a super established actor. And I thought this was a really good quote. They said, Uh, The real surprise for me was Luke Wilson, although there was an undercurrent of melancholy to some performances he'd given before. I was completely unprepared for the sheer magnitude of suffering and pain he brought to the part of Richie Tenenbaum. And his face. Certain titles of your films make me think of one image, and the image I think of for this film is him looking in the mirror after he shaves just before he tries to kill himself. That's the Royal Tenenbaums to me. That shot. And that, I agree. (laughs) It's just one of those bits in cinema history that it just stays with you for so long. It's a very powerful scene. Very powerful. And yeah, Luke Wilson, like he's in what, Legally Blonde and this. And I think that's it. Idiocracy? But yeah, he's like, what what the fuck is he in? Yeah. Like, what is he doing these days? Not much. Yeah. I don't know. I wish the best for him. So the movie centers around the Tenenbaum family. There's the matriarch Etheline Tenenbaum, played by Angelica Houston, a loving, intelligent, long-suffering mother and archaeologist, and a husband royal, played by Gene Hackman, a ruthless litigator who eventually is disbarred. They separate when their quote-unquote genius children are quite young, 
Uh, and those children include the business savvy and driven Chaz, played by Ben Stiller, the quiet, shy tennis prodigy Richie, played by Luke Wilson, who is the only one Royal paid much attention to, and adopted daughter Margot, Gwyneth Paltrow, a secretive and morose chain-smoking playwright. In their adult life, they're all in various states of depression and despair after various breakdowns. For example, Chaz's wife is killed in an accident. Richie breaks down on the court of one of his games after finding out his adopted sister, who he's in love with, is married to Bill Murray, who plays a neurologist, Rally St. Clair. And Margot is stuck in a loveless marriage. She's bawling Eli Cash, (laughs) (laughs) who is played by Owen Wilson, Richie's childhood friend. And Margot hasn't written a play in years. So they're all having a pretty rough time. After having not heard from Royal for 10 years, he finds himself broke and kicked out of his hotel. So Royal tries to get somewhere to live and win back his ex-wife, who's now engaged to Henry Sherman, played by Danny Glover. Royal pretends that he's dying of stomach cancer to try and get in with them and manages to lie himself into moving into the old house, where the kids have also recently moved back to. He then starts to win back the kids and attempt to right some wrongs, but also try and get Henry out of the picture and get back with Ethelene. He starts bonding with Chaz's kids, who he hadn't met before. Eventually, he's found out and kicked out. Richie and Raleigh uncover Margot's affair with Eli amongst her extensive lovers list, which leads to Richie trying to take his life. This act brings the family together, and he and Margot confess their love, but agree they cannot be together. Royal tries to repair his wrongs again and do what he can to help the family out. He grants Ethelene a divorce, and she goes on to marry Henry Sherman. But unfortunately, the ceremony is thwarted by Eli driving his car into the front of the house. After a chase from Chaz, because he almost kills his sons in the process, they both realise they need help, and Royal somewhat repairs things with Chaz. It seems they've all reconnected and have their lives getting somewhat back on track. Royal dies of a heart attack a few years later, and the funeral, it is agreed, was most satisfactory. Good summary. Imagine, though, that Alec Baldwin said all that. And you have the movie. What a voice. I don't think it would be half as good without that sexy, sultry I Alec know. Baldwin draw. Love it. It's a shame that Alec's got a few problems because I, I love him. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> on the verge of being yeah, cancelled. Be but um, hopefully he pulls himself back together. Just, I was just thinking, um, you reading out that summary, it sounds like the most depressing fucking movie <laughs> in the world. Like, stomach cancer, I depression, know. suicide. But it's like... Yeah. A, it's a joy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that's why Wes Anderson is so good. Like, most of his movies have really shit things happen in them. Like, mm. you know, I love the Darjeeling Limited, and then you kind of forget that halfway through the movie, a boy drowns, and they have to go to his funeral. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But when I think back on that movie, I think of it as being beautiful and... Yeah, this romp on a train and, like, the sights of India and stuff, but it's about their dad dying and they're, like... Their journey of bonding as brothers and... They're, like, swapping pills and drinking weird concoctions and stuff <laughs> and... Yeah, he just takes quite serious stuff and makes it kind of twee and whimsical, but not in a way that makes it disgusting, in a way that makes it relatable, but also uh, you get taken on a journey magical journey. Yeah. I think you get sucked in by this sort of, I hate the word offbeat, but it's, you know, offbeat sort of... Quirky. Quirky, quirky (laughs) vibe of the film. And then he shoves these sort of really adult themes underneath and you don't even realise that's what the movie's about until it's over. And then you're like, oh, that was about depression and suicide and parents dying and all this sort of other stuff. So I think that's one of his strengths for sure. And without trying to be like, we obviously love this movie. I think that's 
the perfect way to deal with themes unless you want to make it super realistic like a biopic because that's what kind of imprints like obviously this movie imprinted us as teenagers and I think it's the ones that suck you in but then are secretly about other things that kind of influence you the most I think. So should we go to our criteria to analyze? Yes, let's do it. I'll start with Wes. It looks like he was inspired to make this film from his parents' divorce. Um, his mum was also an archaeologist, but the trajectory of their divorce was nothing like what happens in this movie in the end. But he quotes a lot of various movies and stories that I've not heard of that inspired him. And one is The Magnificent Ambersons by Orson Welles. You haven't seen? No. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. I watched the clip on YouTube today, but um, <laughs> that's the extent. And yeah, there's like that family in decline, like failure, faded glory. And I mean, Royal Tenenbaum's Magnificent Ambersons. So it's a bit of a ripoff. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. You can see the parallels there for sure. And also, can I just say, what a fucking cool name is Royal? I know. I should have called Casper Royal. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I read similar that the divorce um, of his parents when he was about eight, which I think is the same age as the characters in the movie when oh. their parents are like, you know, similar that time in their lives. Um, I think Owen Wilson sort of said, you should write a film about this is what I've read, I think. But then as he wrote it, the story developed and the character of Royal got further and further away from what his father was really like. But that was definitely the jumping off point. So yeah, he is a child of divorce. So he sort of went through that. And I don't see Wes Anderson's dad being as big of a prick as Royal Tenenbaums. Well, you'd hope not, because I'm sure he stands watching it going, yeah. oh, is that what you think of me? Oh, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> Some critics noted that in his films, he has a preoccupation with father figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Steve Zissou, um, Rushmore, and he told New York Mag about his father figures. I finally realised the father figures in his films are just the opposite of what I really grew up with. Mm. And for me, there's something exotic about it. I'm drawn to those father figure characters that are larger than life people. And I've sought out mentors who are like that. So I relate to them, but they're not my father. I wonder too. I don't know anything about his siblings. Like, does he have a brother or a sister? Oh, he's got a brother. Oh yeah. Eric Chase Anderson, of course. His brother. Yeah. Cause he does all the sort of illustrations, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And he's got an older brother as well. Oh, does he? He's a physician. So, yeah, he's uh, he's part of a family. So, that's his lived experience. And it's funny, I was reading that he sought out a lot of actors in the movie who have, like, successful families and a successful past. So, like, Gwyneth Paltrow's mum is Blythe Danner and Angelica Houston is from the Houston family. Don't tell me who's in that. And then Ben Stiller is Jerry Stiller's and Anne Mira's. Like, there's so much influence in their like families and then you know it's kind of about that famous family and being sort of revered yeah he said like not necessarily what was part of the plan but it was like what drew him to those actors was that kind of background and you can assume probably what drew the actors to the story as well being a part of those very influential intellectual kind of successful mm. families the actors were probably like oh yeah i can i can play this and draw on some things yeah i know this i looked up a bit of the actors as well i think you did as well yeah, yeah, I got a bit about Gene, yeah. So this one isn't sort of about lived experience with mental illness, but I guess relating to the character. Um, this is from ScreenRant.com, and no citations at all in the article. It was like 10 behind-the-scenes facts about the Royal Tenenbaums. So, in interviews, um, he said that the, the script that he received... I think um, Wes Anderson wrote Royal with Gene Hackman 
um, in yeah. mind. Yeah, I did read that too. And apparently he was a piece of shit on set. He was like awful to deal with. It's a bit of goss. Um, the script <laughs> made him realise that he'd been cold and insensitive towards his own family in the past, much like Royal Tenenbaum, and he worried that his family would be uncomfortable with him playing the character. But he asked his family if he should um, do the role, and they said he should take it. So I guess, you know, there are parallels between uh, Royal's behaviour and Gene Hackman having the insight to realise that, oh, I've been a bit of a shitty dad too, which is, you know, credit to Gene. Maybe he learnt from the script. Yeah, exactly. Maybe be less shit. And then he quit acting, so I don't know what that says. Oh, I didn't know he quit acting after. <laughs> yeah, he done. I wonder if he'll be me too for some reason. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Gwyneth has been very public about having a diagnosis of postpartum depression but probably after the fact like she had it after the birth of her second baby in 2006 and the movie came out in 2001 Steph so I know but you know come on there are some risk factors that are yeah you know she might have some had some predisposition to anxiety and depression or maybe it was just being married to Chris Martin from Coldplay who knows yeah that would have said anyone uh what's the word (laughs) (laughs) mad (laughs) mentally unwell (laughs) Well, she called her kid Apple, so she's a bit fucked up. But she is very public about how I had postpartum depression, but I didn't want to have medications. Although you can have medication, it's fine. But I chose alternative therapies and they worked and I feel like I could do it without um, medication, which is not a good message. Thank you very much. Very, very rich person who mm. can access mm-hmm. alternative therapies at the drop of a, a hat. Yeah. Um, Didn't she say, like, she slept a bunch? Yeah, she said, like, sleep. I'm like, I'm sorry, but when you're a mum, unless you have, like, lots of nannies, you just can't catch up on sleep. <laughs> so good for you, Gwyneth. You were able to sleep. Yeah. Go, Gwynny. Yeah, but, like, her... Goop. Goop. She, like, her credibility is kind of shit now. So. Yeah, she's really fucked up her brand. Um, but, yeah, Goop is, uh, Goop is awful. Yeah, I don't want I don't want a vagina-scented candle. And I looked it up and it cost $75 US a candle plus delivery. I would not spend that much on any candle. Yeah, let alone, well, I'm kind of interested to sort of, you know, know <laughs> what Gwyneth's vagina, vagina smells, smells like. I'm only human. Um, and she was advocating steaming a vagina and using, I remember reading an article about colloidal silver to like fight off germs, but it turns you blue. Isn't that like kind of toxic? But... Yeah. Apparently the, the, the particles stay in your body and then react to something and that turns you blue. There's a guy in Dr. Phil who's blue. Um, so <laughs> do not use colloidal silver. Don't listen to Gwyneth. Owen Wilson Owen. has a very public history of trying to be private about it. Substance abuse. I like that phrasing. Public history of trying to be private. <laughs> uh, you tell me about Owen because you, you saw him. Oh, yeah, I met Owen. You met him? I was in L.A., at like a, a like a sandwich joint, and who should be there but Owen Wilson with a mate? Was he saying, "Wow, wow, yeah"? That's all he was saying. It was really, <laughs> it was kind of off-putting a little bit. Um, so he did a couple of little walk-bys, and we were like, "That's fucking Owen Wilson." And then I think he left, and then we left. We were in a, a high car. Then who like is in front of us? But Owen Wilson on a bike. So we um just sort of followed Owen Wilson driving around like Venice Beach streets for like twenty <laughs> minutes, just slowly driving behind him. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. Yeah, very creepy. But um, yeah, so about six years after the film came out, he attempted suicide. 
This is all sort of by like US Weekly reports and like friends of friends and stuff like that because he is quite private and hasn't really spoken about it. Fair enough. But he did give a public statement to just like yeah. let him chill kind of thing. To TMZ, the most reputable outlet. But yeah, apparently he was severely addicted to heroin and cocaine for months leading up to his um, suicide attempt. And of course, that parallels Eli's substance abuse and Richie's suicide attempt. So that's definitely, I mean, this happened after the film came out, like, you know, a while after, but it's fair to assume that there were probably those sort of substance abuse issues throughout his life, I'm assuming. I don't want to assume, but, you know, look at him. And, like, he co-wrote the screenplay, so maybe they were straight from his head, from the top of his dome. And Luke's part, Luke Wilson's part, Richie Tannenbaum, was written for Luke, apparently, I don't know if it was specifically from Wes or from Owen. And, like, you don't really hear much about Luke Wilson, sort of, whether he's got mental health issues or addiction, Mm. but I think because Owen probably overshadows him anyway, people would maybe care more (laughs) if Owen wasn't his brother. But I did read in an interview with Wes that there were a few things at play when writing the part for Luke. One is that he's always had some people that were his followers. When he got sent to boarding school, he was saying that no one there liked him and his father went to visit him. And then when his father got there, Luke was just being elected one of the prefects. And he saw that Luke was one of the most popular kids in school and he was kind of a hero. But Luke didn't feel that way. Like, he didn't want to be there. He was sad and he was homesick. And he's very charismatic, but he doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve. And the interviewer was like, he's like a ghost in this movie and like a ghost in his own life. And I think maybe Luke feels that way, given that little tidbit. I don't know. Yeah. That's all I could find on him, though. Well, that was a good little find, but he's so good in that. Luke Wilson's so good. He needs more shit. I know. Why isn't he in what? Maybe he just chose bad movies. And I guess having a brother like Owen Wilson means maybe you you have the dregs. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Yeah, he overshadows everything. But I think seeing this movie was the first time I saw both of them probably on screen and Mm. like not knowing how big Owen Wilson was going to be. And I was like, Luke Wilson is like the star for sure. Oh, yeah. He's more attractive. That's true. He's a better actor. He's got a much better part in the movie. He's so sympathetic. I thought he would have this like huge career, but he hasn't, so... I, I remember thinking that too, like, Owen Wilson, not not good-looking guy. No. Luke Wilson, hello. So when talking about the accuracy of, like, mental health issues in the film, let's not go too deep into the DSM and just sort of talk about what we think each character sort of has because there's a lot. There's a lot of characters in this fucking movie. And they've all got problems. <laughs> And I I guess I also want to talk about the family dynamic and how accurate the sort of outcomes in the film would be. So let's start with Royal. Yeah, let's get the big one out of the way because he is a piece of work. And when we were collaborating with, like, notes, I wrote um, personality disorder, maybe narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. And then you went ahead and was like, yeah, and started (laughs) writing all about narcissistic personality disorder. I was like, well, I don't have to do any work here. Well, like, I I was like, he's quite narcissistic. And is there a narcissistic personality disorder? And I Googled it, and there was. And it seemed (laughs) to, he ticks all the boxes for, to some extent, like, according to the reliable resource wikipedia.com or .org, it is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. And Royal pretty much ticks all those boxes, I think. Mm-hmm. He 
has a massive inflated sense of his own importance. Everything is about him. Fuck yeah. He loves attention. He wants admiration. I'll get into a couple of examples in a bit. Troubled relationships, like for sure, his whole family hates him basically. <laughs> and he definitely has a lack of empathy. We can't really see anyone else's sort of point of view, I think. So, like, what do you reckon? Do you think he has NPD? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know how severe you have to be for it, but yeah. Like, even, like, he's a pathological liar and manipulates people to get Absolutely. what he wants. Like, he will do whatever it takes just to get as a means to the end. And, like, even when he separates from Ethelene and they're like, is it, was it our fault? Like, any parent would be like, of course not. Except him, he's like, well, I mean, obviously we made some sacrifices as a result of having children. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just, he can't even... He doesn't have enough empathy to think, maybe I shouldn't say that to my kids. Yeah. When I was watching yesterday, I was like, that's the actual first proper joke of the film. (laughs) And it's really funny, but it's also quite devastating. Like, to hear that as a kid, that alone would fuck you up. I know. For life. Like, it's such an awful thing to say. And and they're like, well, why does she want you to leave? And it's like, I don't know. Like, uh, I can see why. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't know anymore. And, like, Pagoda brings about a martini and he's like, everything's about him. And he has no empathy. He doesn't know how to deal with his kids at all. Yeah. He's a piece of shit. And just when you said that last thing, like, it's all about him, like, even when he gets found out that he doesn't have cancer, he's like, but isn't that great? I'm going to live. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He can't even see the hurt that that caused everybody. He can only see it as like, but hey, I'm going to be sticking around. Aren't you happy about that? Yeah. uh, Royal to a T. Fucking classic royal. And what were some other examples? So, um, when Pagoda informs him that Henry Sherman has proposed to Ethel, um, he says to Pagoda, Lord knows I've had my shame of infidelities, but she's still my wife, damn it, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's allowed to have infidelities and cheat, but she, not having spoken to Royal for seven years and then, you know, effectively being broken up, she can't have a relationship with one other man. It's all about how it affects him narcissistic exactly and it's that sense of entitlement uh i'm entitled to you even though i actually don't really want to have anything to do with you i just don't want you to be with that person yeah exactly it's not almost about love it's just sort of about a bit of power a bit of ownership exactly and feeling good about himself like status sort of thing oh yeah that's also just toxic man behavior too yeah fuck man jesus christ um (laughs) When I watched this when I was younger, I didn't sort of grasp all these bits of how shitty a dad he was and how narcissistic he was. One of the most hurtful things upon rewatching it was when um, they're talking about Richie's Wimbledon meltdown, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the worst moments of Richie's life. Like he's throwing his, you know, huge match at Wimbledon because the woman he loves, his sister, but whatever, um, is about <laughs> to marry Bill Murray. And... They're talking about this in the current day and Royal says, I had a lot riding on that match, you know, professionally and personally. And once again, it's a situation that his son is going through. Exactly. But he's turning it about something that affects him. Like he had a lot riding on this match. And then he disappeared after that event and like wasn't seen for a while. It's all about how it affects him. Yeah. And he didn't even, it was like, are you okay, Richie? Like, yeah. yeah he's like, why'd you choke out there? But it's not because he actually cares. It's because he's disappointed with the money he lost. <laughs> yeah. The, the tone is like, what, what was up? What was the deal? Yeah. Like a normal, you know, your typical parent would be like, are you okay? What's going on? I need to see if my son's okay. What's happened? This isn't right. Um, but it's all about how it affects him. And he's obviously he can't deal with the failure of his son. So he 
scones. Yeah. And a little one mm. is just a little throwaway gag that's funny. Um, when they're at the graveyard, mm. um, Richie and Royal are looking at a gravestone with a really impressive epitaph for for an old man who died, like went to war, saved a bunch of lives or whatever. Just gunned down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he goes, hell of a damn grave. Wish it were mine. And even looking at just a random person's grave, he's thinking, you know, I want to have a gravestone that impresses random people who walk past. Like, it's all about how he looks to other people. And I know at the end of the movie, it's like he's redeemed kind of, but he gets that. He gets He doesn't that. work for it. <laughs> he doesn't want to work for these things. He just wants them because he thinks he's entitled to them. It's a complete lie, but it's sort of this like cheeky little wink wink like he's a better man, but also he's still a bit of a shit. Yeah, he's still kind of a son of a bitch. He's narcissistic and he's very manipulative. He lies constantly. And he, he doesn't just like want his kids to do what helps him. He will take money from his kids. To help himself. Like he was stealing bonds out of his de- <laughs> yeah. Taz's deposit box. Which is awful. But it's like, <laughs> haha, so funny. But it's awful. And his response is to laugh. <laughs> I love his laugh. It's so good. It's perfect acting. It's perfect. I'm glad he took the role. Because I can't imagine anyone else doing it. Yeah, he does such a good job. But like he invents stomach cancer. Which, you know, no one can argue against stomach cancer. If you hear someone has stomach cancer, you're like, oh, okay, I guess he can stay at the house. So I guess Henry Sherman will get along. Mm. So he sort of weaponizes this illness. I think at first it's about just having a place to stay. It's not really about the kids loving him. No, I don't think initially he had anything to do with that. And like gradually he comes to realize that he actually really values the love of his children. But it's... um. Mm. At the start, it's just sort of more about just saving his skin a bit. Um, and so mm. he manipulates everyone around him, which is terrible. And on that note, too, because we're talking about accuracy, with narcissistic personality disorder, it's usually pretty difficult to shift. Like, they're so ingrained, those tendencies, those, mm. those characteristics. That's why they call it a personality disorder. It's not something that's in flux. And it's pretty much lifelong. It would be very, very difficult for a man like Royal to just suddenly realise the value of his family. Yeah. I mean, it did take his son um, almost dying by his own hand to do that, mm. but still. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen that quickly or that. People as narcissistic at him would still be the same. Yeah. So that's maybe a little bit inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, that's... That's movie magic. That's script writing. You have to have change in a character. Well, it'd be a very boring movie if there's no change. Yeah, but it, it does seem a little bit um, unrealistic. And I, I was reading that medication is not recommended for yeah. narcissistic personality disorder. You, so they often need lifelong therapy, pretty much. Intensive therapy. Yeah. That's a lot of so- the solution to a lot of these films is just like, just get some therapy, guys. Just get therapy. Just go to therapy. Please. It's worth it. So on paper, Royal sounds like... An awful character, an extremely unlikable dad. I think it would be very fun to play him, though. Absolutely. I was going to say, Gene Hackman, you really root for him because he just Mm. has this massive amount of charisma and charm. Which is also common with narcissistic personality disorder. True. Mm -hmm. True. There you go. Very manipulative. But even when he's just talking with Pagoda and saying, like, let's shag ass or whatever, like, (laughs) you know, he's just so likable and lovable and you find yourself rooting for him. Like, you want him to succeed and get his family back, even though he's a fairly awful human. Mm. Um, And I think that's testament to good casting. Go Gene Ackman. So let's talk about Chaz. Um, Chaz. I think it's pretty clear he's going through pretty severe grief in this mm. movie. Um, but he is dealing with his grief by trying to control the life around him. And he's obviously you know, lost his wife in a pretty, sounds like, 
quite horrific accident. Mm. So his natural response would be try to keep his family as safe as possible, which makes sense. But it becomes quite an obsession and you can see he's constantly anxious. Like even when they are going to sleep in the Tenenbaum house, he's like, okay, good night. Actually, no, I'll, I'll sleep with you. Like he doesn't even want to leave them in the room <laughs> in a house that they don't, yeah. isn't their house. But yeah, he's, it's almost stopping him from relating to anyone, how obsessed and, and mm. controlling he is. Like he doesn't really seem to be connecting with his kids. They're just kind of going along with what dad's demanding from them. I do like though when he goes into the boys' room and, and gets a sleeping bag and sleeps on the ground with them. That I think the younger one. Can't remember if it's Ari or U- Uzi. Yeah, me, I never, I never know. Yeah. <laughs> Coolest names ever. Yeah, I, I almost considered <laughs> one of those for Casper. Oh. <laughs> the younger one climbs down off the bunk bed and, and lies in the same position next to Dad. Yeah, like he imitates see, his position. Yeah, he he's, he still idolizes and looks up to Dad yeah. and yeah. tries to please, which is kind of the danger. Oh, true. And Royal even says, like, it, it can backfire. Like, mm. your, your kids, no matter how hard they might try not to, tend to sort of become very much like you or reject you, um, depending on what happens. That's what Royal says, like, I don't want this to happen to I don't want to this to happen to you, yeah. Um, even though Royal's one to talk, he can see it playing out in how Chaz is being too controlling over his kids. Yeah, Royal has little moments of insight into his children, like it's a piece of shit, but he does have some bits of insight into it. You used to be a genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, Chaz, I guess because he's already in that heightened state of anxiety, can see that Royal's not to be trusted. But he, he he can't manage his emotions appropriately as well. Like when Eli almost kills the kids. Fair enough. Yeah. But, you know, his response is to completely trash the house, chasing him and trying to attack him. So... His kids did nearly get run over. But it's supposed to be the catalyst moment where he realises that he is not he addressing his... Yeah, he needs help. Yeah. Both say, yeah. Is there any element of Chaz that makes you think that he is possibly on the spectrum of, like, Asperger's or anything like that? He's definitely... That, that could be argued for sure. Like, he wears the same suit every day. Yeah. <laughs> but so does every character. <laughs> he stands up at the desk with a cup of coffee to save time. <laughs> and, yeah, he's very aloof and not very social. He's very distant from everybody else. But we only meet adult Chaz after he's going through intense mm. grief. So I don't yeah. know if we could really know what he's like outside of that experience. Uh, when I was, I won't read out much, but there was a, a whole article on the relationship between Chaz and Royal and like saying that it's kind of a background relationship, but it's actually a very important one in that like he's locked his kids away from the world and then it's Royal who sort of helps bring them out again. And, you know, he kind of, that's how the catalyst for Chaz to see he needs to change as well. Mm. So, you know, even that, one relationship storyline is, I, th- I find that really powerful. It's a really well written fucking movie. Can I ask you a question? So, Chaz seems to be struggling a lot with the, the plane crash and the wife dying, but the kids seem actually fairly okay. True. Is that common for, I mean, of course, adults and kids um, process things differently, but in your experience, is that sort of a common thing? Like the parents freak out a bit and overanalyze stuff and the kids are obviously they have problems but they seem still quite well adjusted sort of cute sweet little kids i don't i don't know if they're the most well adjusted because they do seem kind of aloof like their dad is at times yeah but yeah that that can be quite common like kids are actually extremely resilient and in the face of like a disaster 
they will react as a kid would react, but like their processing might be different from us as adults. As it is in it, it takes a long time to process that it kind yeah. of you know, having having the buffer of support around them and the same routine every day can also just help with that processing that grief and trauma and I'm always really impressed and surprised by kids who have gone through real awful shit and they just carry on that's a long answer to your question I no beautiful <laughs> answer beautiful Margot is very depressed I think we can all say ain't she and she experiences very textbook you know isolating herself from the world as uh Ethelene says, sitting in the bathroom all day, watching TV, soaking in the tub. Soaking in the tub. I love the way she says tub. So cute. You know, you can tell there's the dark makeup and just that, the just deadpan, monotone voice. She's obviously very depressed. Riley comes in and says, you have to eat something. You know, she says no. I'm fine, thank you. Yeah. And even just the way, like, when he's coming in and she's trying to hide her smoking, it's like a whole routine that you can tell she does mm. all the time. Like, yeah, she's done for 20 life. years, yeah. And it's like bullshit, like, he'd be able to smell the cigarette smoke even from, like, the closed door. But he didn't know. <laughs> yeah, he's a oblivious little idiot. Like, like, I feel like she's probably the most caricature-y uh, depiction of a depressed person. Like, yeah. I always thought, when I, when I watched the movie the first time, I thought, oh, why is she so sad? She's so stupid. But then when you do hear about, like, her backstory a little bit, being adopted and trying to find her biological parents, which is, like, a weird situation. Yeah, getting her finger uh, chopped off. Getting her finger chopped off. I still find it funny. It's really that. funny. She just, her face is just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, she's had lots of marriages and dalliances with dudes, and she's... Obviously not happy in her marriage. She probably get a sense. She gets a sense that Richie is in love with her. She probably has feelings for him. It's complicated. Yeah, I probably feel sad too. Yeah, <laughs> and she also kind of has that weird double-edged sword of where she seems like she's she talks like she has a sense of superiority, like she really belittles Eli. <laughs> she does. For like sending his clippings to Ethelene and wanting to be part of the family. But that is weird as fuck. It is weird. But she loves to put him down and be like, you're not a genius. But also, like, her self-esteem is pretty low and you know, she's having writer's block or whatever and doesn't believe she used to be a genius. And But, like, when I was just looking over these notes before, I was like, she probably would qualify for borderline personality disorder or really some sort of personality disorder because of, her sort of where she's come from with her background. Yeah. She's been abandoned by a birth family. Yeah. She's very aloof. Yeah. Her repeated like relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like feeling empty is often a symptom of borderline mm-hmm. and using relationships or sex to feel fulfilled. Yeah. 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 Fulfilled. And also trying to develop attachments with people and, and it being very intense and then fleeting. Yeah. Didn't even think of that. And just like her secretive nature, like she's she's almost quite manipulative herself and not wanting... Yeah, I was going to say, she is um, a little bit manipulative, um, like Royal in, in a way. She is a bit of a lie. She's on the phone to Eli all the time. You see her sort of sneaking away mm-hmm. um, on the phone. She sort of strings uh, Raleigh along while she's sort of cheating on him. So, yeah, she's quite manipulative, really. Yeah, and she'll just lie with the evidence right there. Like, you drop some cigarettes. They're, un- they're, they're not they're mine. They're not mine, yeah. 
I never understood that scene as a kid. I was like, where did they come from? I was so dumb. <laughs> but clearly they fell out of her <laughs> fucking pocket. You believed her. <laughs> I believed her. She was so convincing. Oh, if you dated Borderline, Margo, she would have... She would have chewed me up and the spat me out. <laughs> she bloody would have. Um, speaking of the smoking... Yeah, I was curious about the smoking and why she hides it. Why do you think? Well, look, I was doing some research and I came upon this 145-page thesis called, (laughs) um, which I did not read. I read about this paragraph I'm about to read out. And this doesn't really talk about why she smokes, but it's it's interesting. Um, It says, the cigarette has long been thought of as a symbol of the phallus in media representations. Margot's owning of the phallus at the age of 12 could portray her as the owner of her own identity that she won't allow others to decide her fate. Um, and then it goes on to sort of negate that a little bit. But that's probably actually a little bit true. Like, I feel like it's a sign yeah. of, you know, rebelliousness, um, having her own thing, private from other people. That's sort of her personality. Yeah. Um, yep. I don't it's think that. Wes Anderson was um, writing her, smoking a cigarette as her sort of smoking a penis. So, I don't... As, as you said... You never know. There's nothing that's accidental with Wes Anderson movies. That's true. That's true. And... She does like to have some sex, so maybe <laughs> maybe that was exactly what he meant. Maybe. Um, I just like saying phallus. That's a funny word to say. <laughs> it kind of makes sense that you know, it's something that's so not accepted and she does it so young and just secretive the whole time. It's like something that she owns that no one else can take away from. It's a little, vic- a little bit of ownership that she has over something. Uh, Richie... Um... Like, when I was just thinking about it, um, this popped into my head that he is... If there is a main character, it's pr- it's probably Richie. I mean, it's an ensemble piece. And then I read an interview with Wes where he says he's the, the heart of the film, like the emotional centre of the film. And I think that comes across. Like, even in the, um, the title scene where you see them all in the mirror getting ready for the day and he's the last one and then he takes a photo and then the music stops, it's like, it's my, it's my movie. <laughs> and weirdly... This is a bit of a tangent, but when uh, Luke Wilson heard Wes say that Richie was the heart of the film, Luke was a bit confused because he didn't think he had that big of a role in the movie. Mm. I think he sort of thought it was more sort of split quite evenly, but... Maybe he just read the lines and thought, I don't have that many lines. Yeah, what is this shit? Not realising that you don't say much, but you convey a lot. (laughs) Yeah, he does convey a lot with his shaggy hair. So he's obviously... He is depression. He's depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, he even says that in a letter that he writes to Eli, like he hasn't been out of his room in four days. Never um, felt so lonely, so lonely in, my in my life. And I think I'm in love with Margot. I don't know why I said that in a weird French accent. And he's, you know, it's a metaphor. He's like on a cruise liner floating aimlessly through mm-hmm. like, you know, around the world, adrift, you mm-hmm. might say he's adrift, um, metaphorically and physically. You know what? I might say that if anything is on the nose in this film. That might be considered on the nose, just a little bit. What, the metaphor of him floating through the ocean? <laughs> Being adrift, yeah. <laughs> Being adrift. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not as on the nose as the fucking luggage in Darjeeling. Like, actual baggage. It's emotional baggage. That they just can't leave behind. Oh, my yeah, God. They can't. And at the end, they throw it away from up on the train. I didn't oh actually realise that until I read a um, review of it, which said that was I didn't realise that until you just said it. Well, I didn't come up with it, so I can't take the credit. But it's... When you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, quite obvious. So his depression, well, like the main thing is that he's in love with Margot. 
And he's probably mm-hmm. quite confused about that because mm-hmm. um, she is his sister, adopted, not biological, but it's a complex situation. It's like something he can't have and he con- constantly tries to like justify why he wants it by saying, adopted, adopted. Adopted, yeah. He's sort of always throwing that out there so everyone's, sort of yeah. and everyone's a bit like, mm. Um Yeah, like he tries to escape from those feelings obviously and then sort of the reality of it by becoming a wandering nomad is that the right term um exploring the oceans and i think from experience <laughs> the more you suppress these emotions the sort of worse it becomes and that's what he says like when he's making out with her he's like i tried to go away to get away from you but it just got worse so mm-hmm. you know that's obviously bubbling in his mind yeah um, like is he just depressed because he's in love with margot he was, like, treated like royalty by royals, so he, he's got no daddy issues. But even if you're treated by royalty by a narcissistic parent, you can still have daddy issues. No. Yeah. Yes, you can. Mr. Golden Child, Nicholas Finesse. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, he's he's always... He and Margot were, like, pretty close as kids, too, so... Mm. Child Richie seemed like a bit of a dweeb, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. He's got such a dweeby face, his little smile. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing, like, he seems quite quiet in, uh, and sort of inhibited. Reserved, in, yeah. As an adult. So she may maybe brought out some of that in, you know, his personality out to him. So, you know, he might already have a bit of a depressed disposition. And I think given that they were so happy together as kids, maybe he thinks, like, Margot will fix me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah. well. Like, she's the missing piece, which, you know what? The missing pieces in yourself. That's it. It's in all of us, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But like, like we see him painting portraits of her, you know, like mm. numerous portraits of her when they're eight, ten years old, or whatever. And that's like mm. alarm bells for the mum. Like, you know, oh, I think my son's a bit infatuated with my daughter. Um, mm-hmm. But do you think it borders on obsession or a little bit? It's like I think it's it's a bit unhealthy. I think so. Like the fact that you tell me when Raleigh says. I think she's having an affair and he smashes his hands through yeah. a window. <laughs> yeah. Tells you maybe he's a bit obsessed. Um, and he like reads her, her play when he comes back to the house on the rooftop. Like I'm sure he's read that play like a million fucking times. It's like a bit much, mate. It's a bit creepy. Uh, you know, the fact that he has to be in the middle of the ocean to, to get away from his feelings. Like that's a bit. bit extreme. But we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah, but, like, it doesn't seem like someone who's been in many relationships. So maybe it's, it is just infatuation rather than actual sustaining love. Yeah. Because I think he sort of manic pixie dream girls her. Mm. She is not a manic pixie dream girl, but he manic pixie dream girls yeah. her. Yeah, I feel like he thinks she's going to solve all his problems when, yeah. if he can have her because the problem is he can't. Um, but she kind of t- does. Well, no, they don't get together. But at the funeral bit, they're like arm in arm. So I was just yeah, assuming that they... Yeah, but they're just friends. They're just friends. They're just friends. Friends first, siblings second, lovers third. <laughs> no, I, I interpreted like her, like, I think we're just going to have to be secretly in, in love with each other as they'll be close, but... They'll fucking secret. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just, you know, similar to the way when he says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow and then sort of does it immediately. She's, it's something that she says, but then the reality of the situation gets in the way and they sort of... I just always saw them standing next to each other, sort of quite close and intimate at the funeral scene, just sort of showing that, you know, they kind of did hook up, but maybe I'm just being dumb. Maybe I'm being dumb. 
No, I don't think it doesn't even matter, really, does it? It's sort of not really important. Yeah. No, I guess not. But I think, like, I think he probably puts her on a pedestal. But when he finds out she's got, you know, quite a colourful past, mm. as as you are led to believe in the film, he can't handle it and then wants to end his life. Like, she's not the the amazing, the perfect pure person that he flame. thought she was. Yeah. And I guess he's the one character who does. Uh, try to kill himself and uh, that very powerful scene. Beautiful scene, um, isn't it? I actually couldn't re-watch it because Casper <gasps> was in the room and I was like, mm, nah. Give him his first <laughs> chocolate and show him his first suicide on the same day. <laughs> on the same day. <laughs> what a day for Casper. Yeah, so he does try to end his life, which is, you know, we see it quite brutally and I, it just changes the whole film. Like it's... a. It's like a pre and post Richie suicide film. Yeah, it is. Yeah, things change from that point for sure. And I guess you see that catharsis of him becoming really vulnerable and shaving his head and cutting off his his beard and then... Like removing those layers. And then after the attempt, when he's vulnerable with Margot and opens up to her, he kind of goes back to... Wearing the sweat, the sweatband, and the the outfit like the original Richie, it, I feel like he has gone through a journey where he's like he has faced his his feelings. You can tell from the acting from Luke Wilson, it, something definitely seems to have changed in the sort of the way he speaks. Like he seems sort of like he's holding something back at the first half of the film. Yeah, he's like hiding himself. Hiding something. Yeah, and now he's time. sort of vulnerable and open, and he seems still quite sad. Yeah, um, and depressed, but it just feels more authentic or something i don't know do you get that sense he's he's exposed himself and now he's kind of getting comfortable with this more exposed self which i think is good because it's not like oh i hit rock bottom and then oh i'm better now and i'm a new person Mm. it's like i'm not a new person but i'm i'm a bit more myself now yeah that seems fairly realistic i don't know i've never tried to kill myself probably not as uh dramatic but yeah eli eli cash what a wacky character I like relate to Eli a little bit, eh? Like he, um, so his main issue or problem in the film, like it's, is substance abuse and drug addiction, which you can see slowly. It's, you know, well done in the film, like slowly manifesting, like at the, I think he's got like a massive pipe in one scene and then he's on mescaline in one scene. And then you see him like chopping up some coke where they go for the intervention. So it sort of seems like his drug dependency is getting worse and worse gradually. Mm -hmm. And that scene where um, he's driving Margot and he clearly goes to pick up some drugs. I, as a kid, I was like, what's he doing? What is this scene? (laughs) Like I had no idea what was going on. No idea. And we were so naive. He's like, sugar, sugar, it's Eli. Sugar, it's Eli. Sugar, it's Eli. And like, I had no fucking clue. And then a couple of years ago, I'm like, I think drugs. (laughs) Of course. Um, I mean, like you can probably make the connection between his substance abuse. And I think probably his upbringing, like with everyone, Mm. he clearly is desperate to be a part of the Tenenbaum clan. Um, we see in the prologue, he's looking across the street out the window at their house. True. He's there for, what is it, like most weekends? Most afternoons, yeah. Mornings before school and most afternoons. Yeah, he's he's there all the time. It seems like he doesn't come, he's not sort of upper class like them, like even though he lives across mm. the street in like a ritzy neighbourhood. We see a shot inside his apartment. He lives with his auntie, I think. Um, he's putting mm. away like a fold-out bed. And I think he's probably chasing a little bit of that status. Yeah, for sure. And he definitely seems to sort of be the one character who really revels in the fame that he's got. 
you see him, you know, with his book readings, like it's played for laughs, of course. But you know, and apparently just... he was modelled off Cormac McCarthy, like the story, which I had, I had no idea. Haven't actually read one of Cormac <laughs> McCarthy's books. Oh, you have to. They're so good. I've I tried know. to read Blood Meridian. It's so fucking dense. Um, he sort of really wants to be part of that world, I think. And that's yeah. probably comp- compensating for something that he didn't have when he was growing up. Yeah. Would you and say? I guess he, he grew up with, like, the Tenenbaums as, like, he obviously idolised them and wanted mm. what they had, and he didn't have, really, a family. So no. his, you know, in his mind, how to get that is to become successful. So yeah. he becomes famous, but he just wants to be famous. He doesn't do it for the, the joy of creating or, you know. Sort of the right reasons. And yeah. I think, yeah, the drugs sort of come into that as sort of like filling that hole, which yeah. is what drugs do, you know, when you become addicted to stuff, it's to sort of numb yourself or fill, fill a gap in your heart that needs to be filled by something. And drugs takes that spot. Can I ask, um, is, that, is that a personal experience that you Yes. Have? Oh, it is. I mean, I think you can ask anyone who's had some sort of addiction problems with drugs that, which I've had in the past. It, seem, it seems like Eli takes a whole bunch of stuff, depending on the day, just to sort of, you know, numb himself or mm-hmm. to sort of, yeah, so definitely self-medicate. Why do you think he takes drugs? I honestly think that he doesn't deal with fame and success and he's trying to be so desperately be this person that he sees in the Tenenbaums and it's probably a way of coping with that. Like he, he wants approval from a family He wants figure. validation, yeah. He wants validation mm. um, and that can be quite a lonely feeling of inadequacy. So all of those things would be like a perfect storm for using a substance to, to either numb some of those feelings or, yeah. yeah, just calm some of those anxieties. Fill a hole, like you said. Yeah, fill a hole, whatever the hole is. And it's no good. It does not lead to anything good. Um, and I remember watching it when I was a kid. I said this that sentence a lot of times. I didn't quite grasp that he was addicted to drugs as a kid, obviously, because I was a bit too young for that. Sam, I just thought he was a, a funny, quirky yeah, a bit of a weirdo. Just a bit of a wacko. Like, what's he doing on that interview? Like, going wildcat and stuff. And I thought mescaline stuff. was lettuce that you bought at all. Yes, me too. <laughs> I, I thought it was... Because Richie is drinking, like, Bloody Marys, I thought it was something to do with Bloody Marys. <laughs> like, so dumb. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! We're idiots. Um... So yeah, I used to really laugh at all his sort of, you know, weird quirks and his behavior that gets progressively worse throughout the, the movie and stuff. Mm. Uh, but watching it back now after going through, you know, addiction to all kinds of weird drugs, um, I recognize a lot of my behavior in his behavior. Like it is a fairly accurate, I mean, everyone mm. goes, you know, experiences addiction differently, but I recognize a lot of my behavior when I was on some like weird shit to the can way I... that, yeah, you can ask. Can I ask, ask what, what does... Eli do that that resonated with you well just like you know when um when Richie goes over to Eli's house and he says he's on mescaline and um they're just sitting like Eli's sitting on the couch Richie's um standing up and no one's talking to each other is that amazing painting in the background yeah beautiful painting of the dudes on the like quad bikes um out of the blue Eli says what'd you say and Richie says, I didn't say anything. And I've done that before. Like, I've thought someone had said something to me because I was on some weird stuff. And Mm. it's really sad. It's, like, one of the saddest things to do because the person you say that to is, like, you're not right. Like, something is wrong. Mm. And um, I just recognise, you know, past behaviour in what what Eli was was going through. And, um, Mm. yeah, not as funny anymore. 
but still funny. <laughs> you know, I, that makes me think that either Owen Wilson or Wes had been around people who had taken drugs because that is a quite, it seems like a realistic, accurate depiction of someone who's on some weird psychedelics where they, you know, have auditory hallucinations and stuff. And in a very subtle way too, like just mm. like watching it as a kid, we were just like, he's so funny and weird. Yeah, he's so like, weird. You know. Well, it's not like Requiem for a Dream or anything, so we said, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You know, we wouldn't necessarily recognise that in someone unless we knew that's what happens when someone's coked out or whatever. Yeah. Do you feel that way too, like, that people didn't know that that's what was happening or they were just, like, worried about something else that was going on or do you think people Oh, knew? my personal experience. Yeah. Um, I think by the time I started um, randomly... It didn't, it's only happened a handful of times. So it wasn't like every conversation I had. Um, by the time I started um, asking people if they had said something when they clearly hadn't, I, the people around me realized that, yeah, this wasn't normal behavior. Something, something else was going on. And did they, do you think they thought it was drugs or do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, because my behavior had got more erratic. Like uh, Eli seems quite good at first of hiding his drug, mm. drug use until possibly he says that thing to Richie. Um, I got worse and worse at hiding it. It seems like he does too. Yeah, exactly. Because mm. you think, you know, you think you're controlling it and you think the past behavior that got you got you through it and got you by, the lies that seem to work, you think you can continue doing it and repeat the same behavior, but people cotton on to it over time. But you become a you become a pretty pretty good actor for a bit, but then it just becomes too obvious that you're not the person you used to be. So drug drugs are bad. <laughs> Do you think that you're sort of passing, but then you don't realize that you're not or? Yeah. Yeah. You think that you're fooling everyone. You think you're just, you almost believe them. I don't know. It's just a mm. really weird mind mindset, but yeah, because it sort of worked in the past or people have sort of given you the benefit of the doubt, you think that you can get away with it the mm. more fucked up you are. But yeah. So you believe that you're coming across completely sober and fine and this is just how I am, but really you're not. You don't look good. Yeah. I guess it, it kind of culminates for him in driving his car yeah. into a wedding. Yeah, well, he's obviously taken some whatever the fuck it is um, before this massive social event, which is what I, like, I had social anxiety, well, I still do, but, like, I would take drugs to sort of cope with those situations, and it seems like for Eli, it's gotten to that point where he just mm. needs it all the time, and he is like, here I come, and... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's obviously reached the sort of climax of his drug use and mm. he does something so reprehensible, deplorable, that mm. it causes him to realise that he's hit rock bottom and needs to change. I hate that term. Hitting rock bottom. I fucking hate rock bottom. Yeah. But it's so true. You have to do that. And did, you, did that resonate with you without getting too personal? Because I am your sister. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I never had... I mean, like, I did some stupid stuff, but I never had... There were probably a lot of moments where I should have realized that um, I needed to change, but it was more, a, it, mine was more a slow realization that with the help of like family and friends and stuff that my drug abuse was um, off the charts crazy. It wasn't sort of a one isolated incident. And it just sort of, you know, we've spoken a lot about a very small character in the movie and even he has a very complex, deep trajectory. Like, yeah. Obviously it's quite clear that we really like this movie but it's just a fucking good movie yeah i mean like yeah sort of um secondary character who doesn't have that many lines has a quite rich backstory and um you get a really good insight into sort of what makes him tick and 
you see the him progressively getting worse. Yeah. Does it does it better than a lot of, you know, Hallmark addiction movies does. Yeah. Like it's sort of <laughs> That's not hard though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But like a movie that's dedicated to one character, like this movie does better with just a little side character. It's well written. So, it's very true. Can I talk a little bit about I know we're talking a shit ton, sorry. About his yeah. the intervention bit. Oh yeah, 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 Another aspect of Eli's substance abuse that I thought was quite realistic was him sort of lying um, and manipulating the situation to get out of trouble, like mm. during the intervention scene where Richie and Royal and Pagoda go to um, confront him and say, you have a problem, we need to sort of, you know, get you some help. Eli does all the right things. He says, I realise I have a problem now. I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum, which is kind of manipulative, probably true as well. He says, I'm just going to get, go get my things. And Pagoda points to him and he's like bolting out the door to get a cab there he goes yeah and he says skiddly skiddly um (laughs) which is so fucking funny um but that resonated with me because like in those moments you just say anything you can think of to sort of get yourself out of trouble out of hot water um Mm -hmm. you'll lie to people to their face and i guess he's also high at the time like yeah although he hadn't quite snorted the cocaine yet but maybe i i reckon he was yeah, he, yeah, he would have taken something. So, you know, he's not in a rational headspace to go, fuck, yeah, you're right. It's good good to know that that resonates with you and that you've fucking lied to me a lot. You can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a lying piece of shit. But, like, I don't want to... Sorry, this is good. But, you know, it's not... You're not yourself. Like, it's not you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... I mean, it is you, of course, but your brain is... is it's getting something that it doesn't get normally and that mm. you really want. It's getting, you feel calm and you feel at peace and never just, you just want peace. You know what I mean? So and you just want that feeling all the yeah. time. Mm. And that's what's so fucked up about highly addictive drugs is that you've got to take more and more and then you just, it ruins your life. Um, mm. But I think it stems from inadequacy issues. Bam. Do you want to talk about the matriarch of the family, Ethel? The matriarch, Ethel. Yeah, she just, Seems to be like the the stable, loving but not like over the top mum who just works really hard and and does everything for her kids. You know she was constantly somewhat tied to this asshole, and you can't really fault her apart from I think like sometimes she seems a bit cold and not very warm at times. Mm. She could maybe like a man might say, oh you could loosen up a bit, love. But, I would never say that. But if you are still married to someone like Royal, like, you know, I would I would probably feel that way all the time. Yeah. And like Royal even says, you always put them first in you. And she's like, yeah, but maybe I didn't do such a good job. Like she, she doesn't pride herself on being a good mum. She just does it. She's very selfless, isn't she? Yeah. And then, you know, Royal finally lets her go and she gets something she wants that she she's never really considered any other people in her life until Henry Sherman. So mm. it's, it's nice seeing someone who, you know, there wasn't even much time for her to be sad or, or anything. She was just getting on with it. Yeah. So she's probably the most adjusted person in the movie. She's an absolute saint. Like, even the scene in the hospital after um, Richie uh, attempts suicide, like, she's just filling out the form. She's just doing that mum thing where she's just... Yeah. No time to be for, you know, sadness or grief, but she's just... You know, doing what she needs to do for her kids. Yeah. I, I, I just realised I love that line too when Margot's like, she's been smoking for 22 years. And then Ethelene's just like, well, I think you should quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
you know what? She does. Margot quits. Like, she obviously has yeah. a really close relationship with her kids. Yeah. But it's not it's it's not a Hollywood close relationship with her kids. It's got nuance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels right for the whole um, Raw Tenenbaums world. Um, let's finish this very long section with Riley St. Clair. Yeah. Because, of course, I have to because he's... He's your boy. Um, basically a psychologist. He's on the um, list for you, isn't he? Yeah. He's modelled off Oliver Sacks. It's kind of funny because he seems like a very stoic cold you know he's probably a bit depressed too <laughs> but i think oliver Sacks was very whimsical oliver Sacks had such a, a he was such a be- beloved doctor and did so much and he just was genuinely fascinated by people but i love i loved 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 the scenes um of bill murray and dudley always um <laughs> and whenever i do a cognitive assessment with the kid pretty much every time i think Make yours like mine, which you don't actually say in an assessment because it's all very prescriptive. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that red one going to go? Yeah. You don't say that. <laughs> I wish you could. And you also aren't allowed to be like, that's so interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> How bizarre. <laughs> you have to be very neutral. Um, otherwise, it's not really standardized. What a weird setup. Like, he just, it just feels like that kid's been like on loan from the parents like he just he just has him but i think that's a very american thing like Mm. you know in the u.s psychiatrists and psychologists would just have chimpanzees live with them and stuff like that you know (laughs) to do you know tests on and the you know the like the wolf girl would just be taken in by a psychologist family Mm. you know it's not really something you do these days no but gosh, I, I really want to say how how interesting, how bizarre every time to an assessment. But <laughs> and I'm you not can't. allowed to. You can't. <laughs> Before we move on to the next criteria, I just want to like give a little summary of all of my millions of thoughts about the family dynamic in this movie and how it kind of relates to trauma. Because, you know, the in the household, Ethelene has that unconditional love. Royal is a narcissistic absent father. I think Richie was like the golden child where he was given the praise and adulation from dad, but dad still took advantage of his skills. Mm. Margot was very misunderstood, probably the most disconnected from Royal because like there was nothing he really could get out of her. And he just made fun of her achievements. Like it's just a bunch of kids in animal (laughs) costumes. Yeah. Awful, awful comment. And then Chaz, he just totally stole from and took advantage of his skills. But even though, he was such an awful parent. They still want approval because as a child, you're still primed to want your mm. parent to love you. Yeah. And like even Richie, when Royal leaves after he throws that match, he's like, I understood. I know you're not very good with disappointment. So like Richie's kind of in the role of the parent for mm. Royal. Like yeah. I know that that's bad for you. So I will, I will understand that. Like he blames himself. And it's interesting that the only person who exposes Royal, who's able to expose Royal as not having cancer, is the only non-Tenenbaum in the film, which Mm. is Henry Sherman. And I think that's because even though the kids distrust him and don't really are very wary of him, they still kind of almost don't want to believe that he would be that awful because they still want his approval and love. But I think there's lots of metaphors of healing, like Mordecai. Mordecai. Richie releases Mordecai when... 
when um, Royal leaves the family and then Mordecai comes back and then Richie says, oh, he's got more white feathers on him. Uh, sometimes if a person has a traumatic experience, their hair grows white. So I think, you know, Mordecai is like the symbol of family and fatherhood yeah, and harmony sure. and coming back from a traumatic experience. So mm-hmm. like Royal mm-hmm. reestablishing himself in the family is like they're able to kind of heal and not completely heal. Changed a little bit. Yeah, just be back on their trajectory of hmm. getting on with life. Like, Margot starts writing plays again, even though it's not particularly great. Richie starts coaching tennis. Yeah. Chaz starts spending time with his dad. Eli goes into rehab. Like, And hmm. I guess in the beginning of the film, they're all very separate and away from each other. And then at the end of the film, they're all together. Even if they're doing different things, but they're sort of around each other. But it's funny, apparently... <laughs> The bird used for Mordecai was caught by a citizen of New Jersey when they were filming. Held hostage. It was held hostage and demanded a price for its return. And they're like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just get another one. So they replaced the bird with um, someone who was more white in colour. So they must have written that bit into the film. Not realising it would be very powerful for me. (laughs) Imagine if he wasn't kidnapped, then we wouldn't have this beautiful metaphor about changing feathers. They'd have to paint them on him or something. Yes. Apparently they painted the dots on the the mice, the Dalmatian mice with a sharpie. Yeah, with a sharpie. (laughs) Which has gone down in Hollywood folklore. Which is pretty maybe some animal cruelty there. Apparently they got a pass from like the Animal Cruelty of America Association. They got the tick. Well, that that makes me feel better. (laughs) It's all good. Put your Sharpie on your mice. So as I was watching the movie, I uh, wondered um, how much can we actually blame Royal for his children's problems? Because they seem to, I guess, career-wise and success-wise, cope pretty well despite his sort of borderline abusive behavior. They have pretty good careers, um, a lot of success. And things sort of fall apart, not in direct relation to anything Royal does directly to them. But um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like you'll have some interesting insights. It's a good question. And I think you're right to query it. Um, Because no one is responsible solely for somebody else. But I do think that we can blame him because (laughs) he's a shithead. No. Because, like, luckily for the family, they had an unconditional love um, source from ethylene. which was a buffer for, like, the problems and led to their success. But despite that, like, it's very important to have at least one good caregiver, good as in, like, good enough, but also research has shown over and over and over again that having been abandoned by a parent or having a narcissistic parent like like Royal mm. can create really quite lasting impacts on a child's worldview and their self-esteem and their social-emotional development resilience it's definitely not the sole cause of what's gone on in their lives but definitely a huge one it doesn't mean they can't overcome those problems but um, even though it's not directly responsible for say Richie having a bad match yeah if he wasn't abandoned by dad he may not be like needing his sister to fill a hole the hole may not have been there do you know what I mean or think the solution is to throw a match and have a big meltdown in front of the whole world. Like he'd, yeah. he'd, he'd, 
he'd cope with it in a different way. And like all the kids are sort of in that arrested development. Arrested development. Arrested yes. development. Yes. <laughs> so they all haven't really got coping skills. Um, you know, Ethel probably tried her best, but then they they only had it all falling on her shoulders. And also, she wears the same outfits as well all through the film. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, he, he, I feel like their their child their development has been stunted, but they've managed to succeed despite it, as you said. So, yeah. Um, there's a few uh, articles that talk about that specifically. Um, I'll just quote one. The dissolved <laughs> I've got one. Got so many quotes. <laughs> like one person asks, they're they're talking about the film Scott. in this article. Scott. Are we putting too much on Roy here as the catalyst for the family's decline? In terms of the children's achievements, Roy's departure does nothing to stop them from succeeding. After Inazis' separation, Chaz, Richie and Margot still thrive in their individual disciplines, and it isn't until later when adulthood can no longer sustain their precociousness what does that, mean? that the Tenenbaums fall off the ledge. What does precociousness mean? Like, adulthood can no longer sustain their precociousness. I don't know what that means. Like, they can't just kind of do what they want anymore, sort of thing. Yeah, okay, true. I get you. Yep. Royal's greatest sin in this regard is not being there when they fa- when they fall. We can see that Richie's dramatic on-court meltdown is motivated by Margot marrying Raleigh Sinclair, but we also learn later that Royal disappeared from Richie's life after the match. I'd say their failures are all but inevitable. How often do accomplished children in the media spotlight segue into success as adults too? But Royal left them that much more emotionally ill-equipped to deal with the aftermath. Beautiful sentiments from Scott. That's so fucking true. Yeah. 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 They're resi- they don't have resilience. I was just playing devil's advocate with the question. I wasn't saying that's what I think. I was just putting it out there for some discussion. And luckily for you, I already thought about the answer before you even asked it. I didn't yeah. even know you were going to ask it. Oh, we wink, must be wink. fucking related or something. <laughs> End of part one.